Well, being a, a young mommy is tough during Christmas time. It, it's easy for all of us at Christmas to be distracted by all the things uh, that are going on, by all the stuff and all the noise of Christmas. But, but it's even harder for children, right? Recently, I read a story about a, a young mother that was really committed to keeping Christ at the center of Christmas for her family. And so she had all these plans with her kids that, that, that she wanted to carry out to help keep Jesus at the center. And so they, they made a, a birthday cake for Jesus. They each night would read the Christmas story, and then the next night they would reread the Christmas story, and then they would just discuss different things that they, they saw in the passage or things that, that struck them. She, she, would, uh, uh, she set it up to where she and the kids went Christmas caroling at a local nursery, uh, at a local nursing home. At their church, they did an angel tree, and of course, they got gifts for all the, the angel tree, and, and she had her house filled with just Christmas hymns playing at all times. However, when Christmas morning came, it was all about the toys, and the kids just stormed in there, and it was fun, and it was awesome, but, but it was really just about all the things that they got, and you know, the parents were experiencing the normal parent things that you experience on Christmas morning. They had been up too late, like putting things together, so dad was grumpy and irritated and tired. Mom was just exhausted over here, and the kids, they were running around focused on the toys, and then each of her kids uh, didn't get something that they really wanted to get, so they were all pouting over that, and then they had this Christmas tradition, a very... Uh, very modern American Christmas tradition to where they went, they always would go see a movie at the theater in the afternoon. And she thought that would be a great idea. But then the family just broke into a big argument over which movie they were going to see. And at that evening, that young mommy cried to her husband because she felt like she, she had just really missed it. She, she hadn't been able to keep her, her kids and her family focused on Jesus during Christmas. And that young dad patiently listened and encouraged his bride and then he shared some wisdom that an older friend at church shared with him about the Christ-centered life. This friend had taught him that the Christ-centered life is really about four things. Number one, it's recognizing that Jesus is the source of all creation. If you're going to keep Christ at the center of your life, he said that number two, that it's being motivated to know Jesus and to do His will. And number three, it's about having the goal of bringing Him glory. And then number four, it's about hoping in Him for all good things. In other words, it's about believing in who Jesus is as well as joining in what He's accomplished for us. That's what it means to have Christ at the center of our lives. So this father encouraged his wife that, yeah, I recognize Christmas morning was a mess. I recognize we got in an argument uh, going to the movies. But at the end of the day, we really sought to put Christ at the center of Christmas. And I really do believe that those are going to be seeds for our children in the years to come. As this Christmas season is revving up for you, uh, you need to be reminded of the Christ-centered life. What does it mean to keep Christ in the center of all things through this holiday season? And one of the weird things about Christmas, right, is there's all these distractions. Like, it's fun. There's a lot going on. And those are great things. I think we should celebrate those things and encourage those things. But one of the weird ironies and maybe one of the dark paradoxes of Christmas, this holiday that has Christ in the name of it, that Christmas itself can actually distract us from Christ. The noise of Christmas can just drown out all the glorious things about Christ. John 1 is kind of a, a similar passage to Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. All three of those passages are these glorious passages that just hold Christ high. They're these glorious passages where you see Christ clearly in all of His glory. 
They're, they're, they're these wonderful passages that, that are clear and they're straightforward, but they're these elevated moments where it just holds Christ up where we are to see Him in all His glory. That's really what John 1 is all about. And so there's not necessarily this like, you know, very clear application, go do this or go do that. Rather, John 1 is really about just holding Jesus up, seeing Him in His glory, and then walking away worshiping Him with pure and glad hearts. John 1 is setting up the rest of the book because John is all about uh, this, this truth that Jesus is the Christ, and if He's the Christ or the Messiah, then we are to turn to Him, believe in Him for eternal life. And so what John 1 does, it's this prologue, it's this separate uh, introduction where it begins to make this case that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you remember the 12 disciples, John is the author of, most likely the author of the Gospel of John, and he's one of the 12 disciples. And if you remember, there's, there's two sons of Zebedee in the Gospels. There's, there's John and then his older brother James. John is, is probably the youngest of all the 12 disciples, and, and he's the, most likely, again, the author of this gospel. And John never uh, states, states that emphatically in the gospel, but he constantly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I, I think that that has nothing to do with him thinking that he's like better than everybody else or that Jesus loved him more than everybody else. I think that really refers in a really tender, in a sweet way that he recognized at the core of who he was, his identity, if you will, is that he was just someone that Jesus loved. I think it's a really sweet marker of who he understood himself to be. Now, this Christmas, we're going to look at John 1, 1 to 18. And again, this is what's called the prologue to the gospel. So it's this separate introduction that kind of lays some things out in order to set up the theme of the book of John. The theme of the book of John is that Jesus is the Christ, and thus we're to believe in him in order to receive eternal life. John 1, 1 to 18 is always relevant. It's always relevant because those truths are the most precious truths that there are, right? That Jesus is the Christ, and if we believe in Him, we have eternal life. And I think they're even more relevant at Christmas time because it's so easy to be distracted from that. The noise of Christmas can just drown out all the glorious realities of who Christ is. It can distract us from Christ at Christmas time. Therefore, kind of the reason why I guess I've picked this or felt led to teach through John 1 is that I wanted us to have a moment where our souls could just marinate in some of these truths. I wanted us to just reflect again upon the glories of Christ. So what I want us to do today is ask two questions. Who is Jesus and what has He done? Look with me at John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see who is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, who is Jesus? I think these two verses highlight three things. Number one, Jesus is the creator. Number two, Jesus is the word. And number three, Jesus is God. He's the creator of the old creation as well as the creator of the new creation. He is the communication of God. Further, Jesus is not only with the Father at creation, but Jesus is God himself. John 1.1 is meant to be a a parallel to Genesis 1.1, right? We, we looked at Genesis 1 earlier in the fall, and of course the Bible opens with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there's this literary thing that's going on here that we're supposed to see this parallel to Genesis 1. But really there's, there, there's greater theological significance in that parallel. It's pointing back to that. 
And, and the first thing it's supposed to highlight here is, is that Jesus is the Creator. First, we see that Jesus is the Creator. He's the origin of all creation. He's the origin or the source of the material realm. Colossians 1 explains that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In verse uh, 16, it says that among other things, it means that, he is, that uh, it is by Him that all things were created. And to get even more specific, Colossians 1 says that all things were created through Him and for Him. Therefore, as a result, Jesus is before all things, and then as well, all things are in Him and all things are held together by Christ. So this is consistent with Genesis 1, it's consistent with Colossians 1, that Jesus is the Creator. Now, like all creation uh, experiences that we have in this life, there's purpose and there's a will behind the things that we create, right? Like think of an artist or, or an author. If, if an artist creates a, a sculptor, a, a, a sculpture of something, that she's doing that for a particular reason, right? So if, if someone writes a book, he's writing that for, for a, he has intentional purposes in that. Like if you think about Charles Dickinson's book, A Christmas Carol, there's a reason why he wrote that. There's something that he's trying to accomplish in that, right? Certainly it was to entertain, but also there's something deeper there. He, he's trying to communicate this Christmas ethic, if you will. He's trying to say, okay, we have this uh, character, Scrooge, and we're not to be like Scrooge. We're not to be harsh and unkind. We're to, rather to be generous and to loving. When we have the tiny Tims in our lives, we're supposed to, to love them. We're to be patient with them. We're to be generous with them. So if you walk away from reading his book and, and you're like a tighter penny pincher, then you've missed the whole point of why he wrote the book, right? So when we create something, there's an intended purpose behind it. And, and that leads to the application of it. If Jesus is the creator, then we're supposed to submit to that will or submit to that purpose. This draws us back to Romans 9, where, where Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? D does a molder say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? If he's your creator, if he's created you, then he's created you for a purpose. And your response to that is to follow his will for your life. Also, as creator, and in connection with Genesis 1-1, I think there's another clear theological connection. It's that Jesus' incarnation is this continuation or this development of God's redemptive meta narrative in his story. God is telling this story of redemption. And it begins, in a sense, in Genesis 1, but there's this high watermark, there's this climax in the gospel where Jesus come and comes and He also creates. He created back then, but now He creates this new creation. He's creating something new. John really is not concerned with the old creation. He's not concerned with camping out on Jesus as the Creator in an old way or in an ancient way. He's concerned with the new creation that Jesus brings. All this gospel is about the fact that Jesus has redeemed. He has this new creation work that He's doing. God's Word is a companion to God's work. And this is a continuation or continuing forward of God's redemptive work in creation. Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. So Jesus created something old, and now He creates something that is new, something that is even more glorious. Jesus, the Creator, is to be obeyed. Jesus, uh, the new Creator, is to be believed. So who is Jesus? He's the Creator. The second thing that these two verses highlight is that Jesus is also the Word. 
Now, there's debate on the meaning of this Greek term logos. The, the Platonists first used it to mean it, it was a self-subsistent uh, form or idea. Then the Stoics came along and they said that logos is really about this internal concept that externally expresses itself. And then the Neoplatonists came along and they, and they used logos in a way to say that it was a, an emanation of, from an absolute or primary principle. And then the Jews came along and they used Lagos in a slightly different way. That they said, okay, this is the Creator revealing His will, but then sovereignly affecting His will. So this is probably where you know, the, the source of the term in, in this understanding or this meaning comes from is that Jewish idea. Another way of saying this is that when, when uh, Jesus is the Word, it means that Jesus was the divine self-expression. Jesus is the communication from God. The thing that God wants to communicate to us is seen in the life, the person, and the work of Christ. If, if you want to know what God is all about, you simply look to Christ. But like in the creation account, His communications are not like our words. I say crazy things and they just float out in the air and nothing happens. But when God communicates, things happen. There's actions that are connected to God's Word. You, you remember the creation account? Let there be light. And then what happens? There's light. In, in the same way here, when God communicates things, He accomplishes things. So Jesus creates, and as the Word, Jesus also reveals, and as the Word, Jesus also redeems. So as Jesus being the communication from God, He's not just telling the way that we are to go, but He's actually accomplishing things with it. But in John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, it's clear that Jesus is not alone in His creating Word work. You see, Jesus as the Logos, it also says here, if you look at your passages, that He's with God. So He's, he's with the, the, uh, the Theos here. Logos and Theos are here together. And every time that Greek term is used in John, He's referencing God the Father. So you have God the Son and God the Father together in this creation work. So this Heavenly Father is with His Heavenly Son. They're with each other together accomplishing this. Jesus is with the Father. He's in the Father's presence. He's interconnected with the Father here. See, their wills are not separated. They have this relationship to where they relate so closely together that even though they're two persons, we're monotheistic. God is, Jesus is fully God and He's fully man, but, but He relates so closely to the Father. He's interconnected with Him. And they have this inner communication that they're one. They have one solid will that they share. And so in all this creation, Jesus is with the Father. So if Jesus is the communication of God, that results not just in the old creation, but in the, then in the new creation, then it means that we're to turn to Him for redemption. That's where we find new life. That's where we find redemption is by turning to Him. You see, the Word is where we find forgiveness of sins. The Word is where we, we find this relationship with the Father. The Word is where we are born again. So not only is He uh, the Creator, He's also the Word, but third, He's God. This passage clearly communicates that Jesus is God. The Logos is of the same divinity as the Father. Even though they're separate persons, they're one in their divinity. Jesus is fully God, but he, and He's fully divine. He's one in the Trinity. He's with, Father, but, but he's with the Father, but also it says here that He and the Father are one. He's of the same divine substance as the Father. John is clearly communicating that the Word is truly divine. Jesus is God. But if Jesus is God, then He's to be worshipped exclusively. So it, if Jesus is God then we can't worship Jesus and Allah. 
If Jesus is God, we can't worship Jesus and Vishnu. And maybe you're not tempted to worship the Muslim God or the Hindu God. But I promise you, you're like me, that you have all sorts of idols that you're tempted to worship, right? Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's having a perfect family. Maybe it's being successful in your career. Whatever your idol is, what he's saying here is if Jesus is God, you're to worship Him exclusively. You're to maybe enjoy the gifts of God, but you're to worship God. The gifts are not to be worshipped. We're to worship the Creator of the good gifts. Now in verse 2, before we move on to verse 3, this is just added for significance. So we read in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. In case you were uh, doubting at all, He just adds this significance. So who is Jesus? He's the Creator. He's the Word. He's God. As the Creator, He's to be obeyed. He's to be believed. As the Word, He's to be trusted for redemption. And as God, He is to be worshipped. That's who He is. But what has He done? Verses 3 and 5 share about what Jesus has done. And it's really two things here. The first one is, is that He has created all things. And second, He gave us light that shines to the darkness. But let me read verse 3 for us. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I think when I was studying this, verse 3 seemed a little redundant. But, but really John's point here is that Jesus is the Creator, but the thing that He does is He creates all things. So He shifted from being or essence, and now He shifted to doing and action. So the divine being is giving way to divine action. Positively here in verse 3, He says that all things were made through Him. But then negatively He says, without Him was not anything made that was made. All this is saying is, is that the Logos uh, creates all things that exist. The Word of God is the creator of all things. It, it, it's, it's impossible for anything to come into existence unless it came in existence through God, through Jesus, the Word. Jesus is the agent, if you will, of all things that were created. Again, this is some parallels here between Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. And in Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, it actually takes this idea one step further. It adds something to it. That not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but all things that He created were created for Him. Let me read Colossians 1.16. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. And here it is. All things were created through Him and for Him. And then the author of Hebrews does the same thing. In Hebrews 1.2 it says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom um, also He created the world. He's the heir of these things. These things were created for Him. This all means that we are to see, uh, we are to see His glory in the glorious aspects of creation. So when we see glorious things in the creation, we're meant to worship the Creator. Beautiful things cause us to worship the Creator it, because, those, because He's the Creator of those beautiful things. If you know me very well, you know that I am not a musician. In fact, every now and then I accidentally leave my mic turned on during worship and like it just melts down the speakers and it gets ugly fast. But um, I love Christmas music and I think it's just pandemic and all the craziness of the world. But I've actually been listening to Christmas music since like October. I've just needed good Christmas music. So I know some of you would judge me, so I didn't want to admit that too early. But my favorite Christmas song is probably Silent Night. There's just something beautiful about that, right? And something, and I think it's a difficult song to sing. And, and for somebody to, to really sing that song well, 
And, and the fact that somebody wrote that, I think for me, what is glorious to me about that song is, is that I can't do it. Isn't that something great? Like when you see someone doing something that you can't do, don't you just marvel at it a little more? Like I, I can't write a song. I don't have that type of creativity. I'm not that type of musician. And then when somebody sings it and sings it really well, I just marvel at that, right? See, all those things, those are to point to the creator. Like I'm not to worship the gal singing it, or worship the person who created the lyrics. I'm supposed to say, isn't that marvelous that the Creator would give someone a voice like that? Isn't that marvelous that that the Creator would give someone with that type of creative ability? You see, all those things actually point to something greater. So when we see beautiful music, or we see some sort of beautiful creation, it's to ultimately point to the Creator. Jesus created, and He created for His glory. Therefore, we're to worship Him through creation. So when we see the, the wind and we recognize we can't create the wind, when we see the power of hurricanes, we say we can't do that. When we see snow or a, the beautiful orange of a sunset, all of those things should point us to worship Jesus. He's the creator of all these marvelous things, these things that we can't do, and he's to be worshiped for it. So what has Jesus done? He's created all things. And what should our response be? It should be worship. Look again at verses 4 and 5, and I want, us to, I want us to highlight two things in here, life and light. Verse 4 and 5, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The second thing that uh, John highlights here in these first five verses of what Jesus has done is that he's given us a light, and that that light shines through the darkness. Now, verse 4 begins speaking not about light, but about life. See, John presents these parallel ideas of life and light. He brings those things together. Now, if you move forward through the Gospel of John, both of those are kind of parallel ideas uh, for salvation or for redemption, and he uses those in different ways. For, for example, in John five twenty six, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he also has granted the Son also to have life in his self. So again, he's using life in order to get to light. But when he talks about life here, he's talking about this divine life. And Jesus has this divine life. So it's from God, meaning it's of the same sort or category as God. It's divine and it's within him. So Jesus has this eternal, divine, abundant life. He he possesses perfect life. Well, this week, and I think just listening to Christmas music and watching college football, it, it caused me to reflect upon life. Like, what is, what is life really at its essence? What, what is perfect life? What is ultimate life? Like, think of life about energy. Like, if you see a, a dancer at, at the peak of her abilities, just expressing herself through dance, that energy that she brings to it, that, that's an aspect of life, right? Jesus has life, and he has this perfect, most glorious of energy. He, he's never tired. I have kind of a weird thing that I do that I read Supreme Court briefs. And there, there's something weird about the Supreme Court that's fascinating to me. And can you imagine being that Supreme Court litigate with all the Supreme Court judges in front of you and they're just peppering you with questions? I mean, don't you have to be pretty quick on your feet? Just the, the proudness, if you will, of a Supreme Court litigate being able to be prepared and being able to, you know, being like <laughs> attacked and on your toes or be calm and cool about it and answer things in these great ways. Jesus uh, has that type of life that, that, that he is just has it all together and he has this proudness about him. Life is also strength. 
we have another Micah on the Dallas Cowboys, and he is awesome, right? Micah Parsons, I think, should get Rookie of the Year. That dude is so big. He is so fast. He's everywhere. And last, uh, at, uh, at the Cowboys Thanksgiving game, he rushed into the backfield, sacked that quarterback. He was so fast, so strong, and he jumped up with just kind of this thrilling yell. If you watch those Oklahoma State Cowboys yesterday, there at the end, they finally beat OU. Spencer kneels down to end the game. Then what does he do? He just threw the ball up in the air and just screamed with this yell. He was just full of life in that moment as everybody then just stormed on the field. Life is about strength. It's about speed. It's glorious. Jesus has the most glorious divine life in him. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, not only does Jesus have that divine life to its perfect degree, and and not only is it eternal, it's never going to end. The good news is, is that Jesus chooses to share it with you. He chooses to share that life with you. And again, if you want an example of what kind of life we're talking about, he modeled that at the resurrection, meaning that even death itself could not extinguish Jesus' life. That's the type of life that he shares with you. John 10.10 speaks of an abundant life that he gives us. He gives us the best sort of life, eternal spiritual life, and he fills our souls forever. This is, and now this gets to from life to light. Look look again at verses four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus' life It illuminates humanity. It shines light in all of our darkest places. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is this life, but but this life expresses itself as light. And then the the great gospel of John talks about uh, that Jesus is the great life and he's the great light. He shines into the darkness. Therefore, Therefore, what comes from within Jesus, his life, is what brings light to us. His salvation, if you will, is spiritual illumination. So, so uh, where we were spiritually in the dark, Jesus then shines the light of the gospel in all of those dark places. We can see the truth when we look back um, at, at these previously darkened parts of our lives, right? Like, it, like as you look back to the way you were, you see where, you were, where it was dark, and you see where Jesus shined the light into it, Right? Like, I have countless examples of this in my life. Like, I know in my life that I have seen God change desires over and over and over again. You see, you're probably like me, that where my heart was dark, Jesus shined the light. You see, where I desired sinful things, where I had hateful thoughts, where I had angry grudges, Jesus shined the light of the gospel in there and then just transformed everything. God shined the light in those places and He changed my heart. When God changes our heart, He does it in ways to where we then now have more joy than we had before. So when He shines that light in there, we see it for what it is. We see it as darkness. We don't desire it anymore. We desire the light. We, we desire to follow Christ. He changes our heart. He brings us joy in that way that we see something better. His light is life-giving. Further, John 1 is this parallel uh, to the creation account. And if you remember Genesis 1, what happens in, in verse 2? Darkness was over the face of the deep. But, but how did light come about? 
Well, the word was communicated. Let there be light. And then there was light over the darkness. What used to be dark was now light. What used to be chaotic was now had order. What used to be cold was now warmth. What, what, what used to be dead was now flourishing. That's what Jesus does with his light. That's Jesus' business, if you will. He brings light to dark places. He brings conviction where conviction is needed. He brings truth where truth was needed. He brings forgiveness. He brings reconciliation. He brings faith. And the light, more than anything, brings hope. You see, when we see the darkness as what it is, we see something better, and we see that He is bringing that light. John 1, 4-5 explains that the light and the light, the light giver has come. The light has come. There's nothing better out there. That's why we have great hope in the light. But the good news, I think, in this passage, and this is maybe the best of it all, or how it gets even better, is that he says that nothing is more powerful than that light. Nothing is going to overcome that light. No sin, no Satan, no demon, no criticism, no spouse, no bill, no disease, no parents, no business or lack thereof, no worldview, no religion will overcome that light. There's nothing more powerful than that, that light. There's nothing more glorious than that light. 1 John 2.8 says, The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Isn't that glorious? You know what that means? That means this gospel, this truth, truth is hopeful. There's a happy ending. If nothing overcomes the light, then we know where we're headed. No matter the up and down circumstances of this life, no matter when things are hard or when things happen that we don't want to happen, we know the end of the story is nothing overcomes the light. That's why we have hope. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He is who He claims to be? Meaning, that do you believe that He's the Creator of all things? If so, do you follow His ways? I'm talking about follow His ways when it's hard or unpopular. And Young people, it's always been unpopular. There's always things that you kind of have to count the cost for. The culture is always against you in some way. It's always been unpopular. But do you believe that He's the Creator? Do you believe that He is the Word, the communication of God, that culmination of His redemptive plan? Are you turning to Him for salvation? Are you turning to other things for life? Do you believe He's God? Do you worship Him? alone or do you worship something else further do you joy in what he's done you see belief is really manifested in the things that we joy in the things that make us happy the things that we worship you see if you truly believe something then you're going to joy in it this is one of the great tests of the genuineness of our faith do you love it do you love these things so when we hear those delightful christmas songs do you ultimately joy in christ of those songs. You see, when we see the Creator's handiwork, does it fill your heart knowing that the Creator, uh, that you know the Creator of those colors or the Creator of those mountains? Do, those, do you stop there at those colors? Do you stop there at the Grand Tetons or do you go on to the one and worship the one who created them? Are you seeking abundant life in Him above everything else? Are you loving the darkness or are you loving the light? When you need light, do you turn to Him or do you turn to the wisdom of the world? Is Christ the life and light and joy of your Christmas season? 
Again, one of the great ironies, I think, of Christmas is, is that the noise of Christmas can be so distracting, can it? I, I read a, a really sweet story this week, and, and it kind of cut me to the quick because I sadly identified with it too much. But uh, I heard a story that kind of puts together, okay, what's the meaning of Christmas lights that we put on our houses? But also, how can that tradition, which is a great tradition, how can that tradition actually distract us from the one true light? Like, you see, those lights are actually to point to a greater light. Like, those lights are there illuminating not just our house, not just there to, to look pretty or to decorate things. They ultimately are to be the symbol pointing to something greater. Again, I kind of identified with this story, and I think it was because it was an old pastor uh, saying it, and he admitted to an irritation that he had about Christmas lights. He said that um, years ago in his neighborhood, he, there was one house in the neighborhood that, that just left their Christmas lights on too long. Are you one of those people that gripe about that? He was one of those people that got irritated about this. So as he wo- wa- walked his uh, dog at night, he would walk by this house, and once it got past uh, New Year's, the lights were still on, and he was like, okay, come on. But then when it got into kind of middle January, he's thinking, did they forget? Like maybe they forgot. Like maybe I need to knock on the door, let them know, by the way, the Christmas lights are still on. But then he got into February and he concluded they're, they're just being lazy now. Like just, just take down the lights. Like what's going on with the lights? And they got like middle February. And he's like, maybe this is some sort of weird Valentine's Day thing that they're doing. Like something's going on with these lights. And he was just super bugged and irritated by these lights. When he got into March, the lights are still on, but then a sign appeared in the yard. The sign said, Welcome home, Jimmy. You see, this couple had left the Christmas lights on for their son who was serving in Vietnam so that when he came home, he could have a little taste of Christmas. Jimmy had had missed Christmas with his family, but this family wanted to share the joys of Christmas. They they had this, this, this great thing that they wanted to share with him. And in that moment, the irritated pastor was just cut to the heart that he was more concerned with the etiquettes of the traditions where in reality this family was concerned with something far greater they saw these lights not just as something you do to decorate your house they saw these lights as something that that brought hope to this boy that had been through something very dark they saw these lights as something that pointed to something greater see jesus is the light of christmas he's shining his light into the darkness And it's greater than any light that we experience here. It shines into all those nooks and crannies, all those dark places of our hearts. It shines the truth of the gospel in those areas. It calls us to something better. It empowers us to something better. It grants us faith in those moments. And ultimately, the fact that His light is never overcome by the darkness, that means that we have great hope. Hope like no other people have. We know that we win in the end. We know that we have a happy ending to the story. We know that his light will always shine and nothing will overcome it. When you see those Christmas lights this year, remember that they point ultimately to a greater light, a light that can never be overcome by the darkness. Cut through the Christmas noise by believing and joining in the Christ of Christmas. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage and just the reminder of how glorious you are and lord as we uh, step into this christmas season i pray father that that we would devote ourselves to the christ-centered life that we would focus on you as the source of our joy 
that we would have fun with the traditions and the food and the family and the parties, but ultimately that we would joy in you, that you would be the one who brings us the greatest life. Lord, we thank you for your light. Our world, as we've seen for a while, is a dark place. It's a broken place. It's a fractured, divided place. But Lord, your light cuts through all of that. And Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have shined the light of the gospel into all the dark places. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.